It was the best of times, and now it's the worst of times in the oil patch. I'm Taylor Muckerman with Tyler Crow on the Energy Edition of Industry Focus. How's it going, man? Not too bad. We're, we're without Sean O'Reilly, our host. So if we're, we flounder, yeah, we're going to be a little rudderless today. <laughs> if if we have a tendency to go off on very long tangents for a long time, this could be a forty minute talk. We don't even know. We, we don't did, have anybody to keep us on track. We did get a request from someone in Japan to extend market foolery and industry focus to twenty to thirty minutes. I don't think it's going to happen, but not today. <laughs> we'll we'll see. Maybe a little down the road. So I guess first off, we can start with. Um, a story that was almost inevitable when you look back at what's going on in the oil industry right now, and that is small companies that sprung up in 2010, 2011, got ahead of themselves or are going bankrupt in the oil patch, mostly service companies right yeah. now. But you have to imagine that there's some producers out yeah. there in the same boat. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Uh, when people were out and it was $100 in oil and basically any bonehead with a hope and a dream and a drill bit could actually go out and make money when we're down to 60 uh it's actually not as easy to make money and those who you know bought a little bit too much equipment got a little too fancy i thought it was uh, very telling in this uh, the article that you had sent to me on this uh it yeah, was this article from reuters by the way article from reuters uh it was a company by the name of gofrac and it was 35 million in revenue and, you know, they talk about how their executives are riding around in a private jet and they had a they already had a uh, what was it, a private suite at the uh, at Texas Rangers Stadium. Yeah. I mean, living the high life, living the high they, life. So this company started in uh, November of 2011. So, you know, meteoric rise when everybody in Texas wanted to drill for oil and then all of a you know, everybody got thinking they were running high on the hog. And then yeah. all of a sudden. You know, when you grow production that fast, you know, demand grows in oil, mm -hmm. but it doesn't grow that quickly. And so when you have that much production coming online, eventually you're going to see a rough spot. And reading what it said, uh, it's not that I have no sympathy for them, but yeah, the I mean, they time, went from 550 employees to now to, six. Right. They, they really have struggled. But if you kind of look at it, it seemed like these people that pushed really, really hard didn't really quite, you know, anticipate the possibility that if you grow oil production that fast, that mm -hmm. there is a possibility that you could see a price crunch and you may need to be ready for when that happens. Yeah, this company, like you said, $35 million in monthly revenues. That's what they started with alone in November of 2011. And uh, to see this company that says that they would move to a 22,000-square-foot office in the 12th floor of Burnett Plaza, which apparently is one of Fort Worth's fancy, most, fancy, most fancy. expensive buildings in the area. And um, I think back to going to Houston to visit National Oil of Varco. And here's this massive company, one of the best in the industry, way more than $35 million in revenue per month. And I th they're on the they outskirts. They probably of, do like what thirty-five million an hour. Probably, maybe. yeah. I would, I would imagine so. I mean, this company now is their headquarters are in the outskirts of Houston, tiny little buildings. There's a few of them, so they have like a, a little campus, if you might call it that. But I doubt that this area that they're in is as nearly as prestigious as this high high rise in Fort Worth. Right. Yeah. So you've got this company. Um, so, anyways, you look at it and they doubled their employee count way more rapidly than they should have 
none of the big guys, if you look at Halliburton, Slumberger, Baker Hughes, the three that this article mentions is probably going to stick around for a while. Um, take some, take they some didn't big double employee their, yeah. take some big employee cuts now, save some, save some cost. Yeah. You know, if things start to pick back up, they can hire back on that. Uh, when I look at this, as from an investor standpoint, the thing that, that stood out to me to most and kind of a, a valuable lesson I think everybody can learn from what we, we saw here um, is the value of being a well-financed company mm-hmm. and having access to cheap money uh, for a long time because of size, because of economics of scale, the ability to adjust, adapt when things go wrong. Uh, you look at somebody like a Baker Hughes or a National Oil Well Varco, we're talking about companies, several billion dollars per quarter in net earnings, mm-hmm. even when you know stuff hits the fan like it has recently. And they still have investment grade credit ratings, you know, better than, you know, A, A, AA in S&P rating systems. So if you look at something like that, the ability to raise cheap capital and to be able to work your way through Mm -hmm. these sort of things, it, it just goes to show, once again, that is an extremely valuable thing in this business when the industry cycles go down. Hey, and if you want to take advantage of when the industry does come back, GoFrack is apparently auctioning off all of its equipment. Yeah, I so. think, well, at the auction, I think it, it got half for what they actually bought it for. Yeah, and just it, a couple of years yeah. after they bought it. If you are looking, they are not the only ones that are going to go bankrupt. No. <laughs> They're not the only ones that are going to be auctioning off equipment. So if you want to go bargain hunting, time to go buy some fracking equipment down in Texas. Hey, a little wildcat action. You, move, you go down to Fort Worth and... Get go. a frack rig and just bring it back to the Marcellus Show. Just don't take out the 12th floor in Fort Worth no, or whatever quite. building that was. On to uh, a much broader topic uh, impacting also the entire industry, but an article, you know, it's uh, when you look at Zero Hedge, you kind of take some of this stuff with a grain of salt, but uh article on the 16th, um, Peak Oil, Myth or Coming Reality, and kind of talks initially about the idea of peak oil supply, um, and how that was thought in the 70s to be accurate. Production started to decline, but clearly production's been increasing almost ever since. Um, and he goes on and to change that theory into peak oil demand. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, this is not the first time that I've heard the peak oil demand um, yeah, theory. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's come up the last couple of years. Everybody seems to get excited about the idea that developing nations are starting to convert over to uh, alternatives. You're seeing a little bit of natural gas incursion in things like replacing diesel engines. You're getting into electrics and hybrid vehicles in the gasoline market, which suggests – that in developing nations where you know you have a more mature market and purchasing power is a little bit better, you're seeing basically a small conversion over to this. Um, I, I when I read the article, it, it showed some very spectacular growth numbers, growing mm-hmm. at 100 percent or something like that. But you know, one, the thing that I saw most glaringly about this article more than anything else was the fact that it's it, it kind of took some small data points that are over maybe one or two year periods and are is trying to correlate that out for next several years mm-hmm. and saying that this is the trend that's going to happen. You know, oil, I think it was oil demand only increased by like 0.9%. Yeah, less than a percent. Less than 1% over the past year. Yep. I think that was according to 
uh, the recent study by BP, they do their big global energy demand yeah. um, or global the energy statistical statistics, re- yeah. statistical review. It's very, Which is worth a read if it, you're interested in energy fun, or just um, fun, maybe the world not. in general. <laughs> I just said fun. You can maybe make a fun drinking game it, out it of it. It goes but. to show how boring of people we really are. <laughs> I just said how fun it is to look at data tables. Our Yeah. So when I look at that, I see a one-year statistical thing. It says, oh, a uh, little less than 1% demand. If that were to continue for several years, then I think that theory could be a little bit more in play. But if we look at the 2014, you look uh, – take an example, developing economies, Europe. We're in a place in Europe where European Central Bank is printing – printing money very similar to the quantitative easing that we had here in the United States. So their economy is not doing as well as they should have expected. Russia is actually in recession right now because of the sanctions, excuse mm-hmm. me, that they've been working on for so long. China's slowing down a little bit. And if you look at things like that, you can kind of understand that it maybe it's not just this isolated of Oh, it's happening because we're converting over to electric. It could just be a, in the larger portion a fact that it could be from slowing economic or mm-hmm. slowing economic growth, which is a major driver of gasoline. Probably of anything else in the world, it is the largest driver of demand. So yeah, when it's you, uh, something like forty-four percent of the end products coming from crude oil is gasoline. So yeah. if you look at that and you see a stagnant economy, it. It, it translates pretty well to slowing gasoline demand. And yes, oil is cheap now because we have ample supplies, but that's not enough to juice economic growth when there are so many other factors that go into that sort of mm-hmm. sort of thing. So I, I'm a little hesitant when I read something like this that kind of takes that one-year statistical aberration and says that this is the crowning peak, this is the the turnover point. You know, I want to see a little bit more time pass of that trend actually continuing before we can, you know, really say that it's definitive. And even if it were to happen, let's say that's true, we're still a really, really long way before oil, gas, fossil fuels like that are not useful to human consumption. Agreed. Yeah. It, it, a couple points to what you're saying. Um, on the the long ways away, he throws away, throws around some some percentage growth statistics on use of electric vehicles, which would obviously reduce gasoline demand. But when you look at a growing a new industry, percentage numbers are going to be outlandish if it's succeeding. But on an aggregate level, electric vehicles are are a minute portion of I the st- overall global. Yeah, I still believe they're less. They're, they're easily less than 1% of total automotive sales yeah. today. And so he was like tossing around – well, not he, but I mean he mentions facts that other people have brought up. Um, EV growth rates of 120% in, the, in China, 69% in the U.S., and 45% in Japan. So yeah, that's great, but we're talking, like you said, around 1%. That, that could be global. going from 15 per year to 27, sure. you know what I mean? So, yeah. it, granted, it is much larger than that, but if you look at it from the grand context of total automotive sales, that's we're still a long ways to go before that's going to have a significant impact on oil. And I think if you're looking at it from an investing perspective, I mean, 
let's take you and I. We're relatively young people in comparison to probably, I don't know, the dozen people that actually listen to this podcast. <laughs> but you know, some somebody like us, we may be able to look at some of these really long tail things and make some investments in the on the possibility that 25, 30 years from now, they are going to actually make a difference in our portfolio. However, if I am somebody five, ten years away from retirement looking to really lock down my position, I don't, I don't see any of these being as valuable versus the dividend checks that you could get from an oil and gas company. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's definitely something that you, know, you can't write off if you're investing for five to ten years. If you're investing for the next 30 Sure. Maybe you don't want maybe you want to sell an energy position in the next 10 years, but for now, especially after what the, what's happened over the last 6 to 8 months, dividend yields a, look awfully good right now, people. It's an interesting time to 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 take a look. And then just one quick point when you talk about slowing growth affecting oil um and and low oil prices being being a part of that um a lot a lot of times people don't give credit to the impact that the oil industry has when prices are high on on the growth of the global economy because it does support so many industries um, based on the demand for for steel or the demand for um, other external factors that that go into making these offshore rigs these these drill bits and and the the industrial side of things that it supports. Yeah, we, I mean, we can take a little take this number with a small grain of salt. I think. When I heard this, it was a little outlandish, but I remember when uh, they were actually trying to propose a Keystone XL pipeline. They said that that thing would support 500,000 jobs in the United States. Granted, they're probably a little temporary, but yes, you're right. Yeah, a lot of uh, construction, uh, steel production. I mean, when I saw that production, that was the highest one I Mm -hmm. saw. That was also like including the extra bartenders that would be needed to satisfy the the steelmaker. As they city hop on the way down. It was very, very ambitious when mm-hmm. I saw it. But, I mean... You have to imagine half of that would be legitimate, right? Maybe, maybe. half. For at least I mean, a couple of years. You know, you get the one number, it's like 35 permanent jobs that are actually pipeline inspection, and then yeah. you get the 500,000 of all the, you know, ancillary benefits. So, you know, you pick somewhere, number somewhere in the middle, probably a little bit on the lower side. Yeah, that's fair. And that you're going to get what you need. But it goes to show that... You know, and that's just one project. Yeah, it's Granted, not, a massive one. Yeah. But. And it just goes to show that the oil and gas industry has a much more profound impact uh, across other sectors mm-hmm. than just you know the ten thousand roughnecks on you know Schlumberger's payroll that happened to get uh, cut in, in yeah. this past year. Yeah, the five fifty employees from GoFrac didn't build the machines that they were operating. Exactly. So. All right, guys. Well, that's uh, that's our show. That's a no, no, not close to twenty or thirty minutes, but we we we'll crossed try to do the a ten little mark. bit better next time. That's right. We'll have Sean, so maybe he can add a little bit more hot air to our discussion. Um, that's it for for me, Taylor Muckerman, and, and Tyler Crow, Industry Focus, Energy Style. Thank you very much.